tonight, I want to share with you four keys to winning the trial and the warfare. It is uh, April 26th. It is 2017. The evidence that God's grace is with us is that the line between righteous and unrighteous behavior is getting clearer and clearer every day. We have been teaching on Friday nights, teaching on Monday nights, teaching on Tuesday nights, teaching on Thursdays, and teaching between those meetings during the day. It's been a busy season in life-changing ministries. We've been burying our own, comforting our own, and sending our own around the world. And we haven't missed a meeting. In fact, what we're doing is advancing the kingdom everywhere. Opposition has come from the most unusual places, and it still has not stopped us, nor will it ever stop us. I want to read to you from Psalm 52, beginning in verse 8. But I am like an olive tree, flourishing in the house of God. Say flourishing. Flourishing. Oh, give us a better flourishing. If you're going to say flourishing, you have to sound like you are flourishing. I am like an olive tree flourishing in the house of God. I trust in God's unfailing love forever and ever. I will praise you forever for what you have done. In your name, I will hope for your name is your name is I will praise you in the presence of your saints. I'm here today to say His name is good. I'm here to say that I'm going to praise Him in the presence of the saints. I can look and see that the Clements stand with us, praising in the presence of the saints. Don't believe for a second that a Christian, a real spirit-filled powerhouse believer, cannot take everything that the devil throws at them. We absolutely can take what comes our way and more. Don't get in the habit of saying, if that happened, I just don't know what I would do. I know exactly what I would do. I would flourish in the house of God. The more the storm begins to beat on me, the deeper I go into the roots of the Word of God. The deeper that I get planted in the fellowship that is that of the body of Christ. An olive tree is blessed during drought. An olive tree is blessed during Times of even bad soil. In fact, the only thing that kills an olive tree is relative ease. I am like an olive tree in the house of God. Say, tonight I'm going to be an olive tree. tree. Saints, Job faced the death of his children, the loss of his wealth, the scorn of his friends, and he survived it and ended up blessed. If you are filled with the Spirit of God, there is nothing that you can't face. For the man who has the Spirit, everything becomes possible. The one who believes, everything is possible for that man. I am not about to break. I'm not even bent. In the name of Jesus Christ, we stand in the strength and the power of our God. We flourish in the house of God. Can you say amen to that? I have been gleaning from 1 Peter. And I've been gleaning from 1 Peter because I acknowledge that we're in a fight. 
And if we're in a fight, I expect to win. I don't want to simply get a merit badge for having been in the ring. I want to carry the head of my opponent out of the ring as a trophy that says to every other Christian, you too can win. In 1 Peter, the first chapter, we're going to glean a few things. After we get through covering much of the first chapter, I'll summarize them for you. Then we're going to reduce them a little bit down to their most strong, their most essential qualities. And then we will look at it through the law, prophets, and writings. Fair enough? In 1 Peter, the first chapter, in the first verse, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect strangers in the world. Now those of you that have been taught to parse the word of God correctly, to handle the word of God in all of its fullness, you may understand that the elect refers to Israel and that Peter is talking to his brother Israelites. But as much as we have been grafted into their promises, we have been grafted into their instruction. And so in that sense, 1 Peter is definitely for us as well. To God's elect strangers in the world. The first thing that you might make a note of in your notes tonight is that the world ought to be strange to you, and you ought to be strange to it. People ought to look at the way that you handle yourself in a trial and say, that seems strange to me. You ought to look at the way that they handle the difficulties in their life and go, that seems strange to me. Light and darkness ought not have fellowship together. We ought to be strange to one another. To God's elect, strangers in the world, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ. Why were you chosen, church? For obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling by His blood. The reason that you are sprinkled by His blood is so that you can continue in obedience. So that guilt and shame do not overcome you. So that you are not defeated by the power of sin, but you become obedient unto life and He breaks the power of sin in your life. The second thing that you might write in your notes tonight is that you were chosen for obedience to Him. Looking at verse 3. Grace and peace to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In His great mercy, He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an internal inheritance. I'm sorry, into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you. Where is your inheritance kept? This does not mean that your inheritance is heaven. It means that your inheritance is guarded by heaven. Have you ever seen a security company sign in someone's front yard? Many times that security system's not even active. Most of the time the monitoring bill wasn't paid and the police won't come. The extent of the deterrent is the sign in the front yard. Most Christians that say that they have an inheritance kept in heaven have something a little bit like an ADT sign. Fallen over, covered by the weeds, 
from a previous owner of the same house. When you stand in Christ, when you trust in Him and your obedience is in Him, then everything that you have, everything that you are, is guarded by heaven itself. When you begin to think about these things together, you can't help but notice one and two in your notes. The idea that the world is strange to you and you are strange to it and that you were chosen for obedience. Those two things, they're kind of summarized in 1 Peter 4.4. Could you put that on the screen for us? They think it's strange that you do not plunge with them into the same flood of dissipation and they heap abuse on you. When you refuse to react out of fear, to react out of greed, when the same stimuli that moves them to action moves you to prayer, they think that's strange. When the things that move you to action move them towards apathy, they think that that is strange. A Christian ought to be moved by the Spirit of God and unmoved by the Spirit of the world. Ask yourself, how strange are you to your neighbors? How strange are you to your workmates? Do you go along and get along? Or is there something peculiar about you? It ought to be strange to the people around you what motivates you. That you are listening to the voice of the Spirit for obedience sake. It ought to be strange to them that you believe everything worth having is protected by God and God himself. The third thing that you would have in your notes is our inheritance is guarded by heaven. Well, how can you have fear of loss when it's in God's hands? Insurance sales would plummet around the world. If we actually believe that everything worth having cannot be kept in a gun safe, cannot be kept in a safety deposit box, everything worth having in this world was guarded by God himself, how would that change human behavior? People might think it was a bit strange. Look at verse 5. Who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. When we know that God protects our inheritance, it has a shielding effect in our life. The way that that's said in Hebrews eleven six, and you can put that on the screen. In Hebrews eleven six, it says, For it is impossible, and without faith it is impossible to please God. Why? Because anyone who comes to Him must believe that He exists. Where are we talking about existing? In your situation. Not in some ethereal place, not off-world, not somewhere else with someone else. If you're coming to Him in faith, you must believe He exists in your situation and that He rewards those who earnestly seek Him. Think about what this does when you face difficulty. Everything worth having, He is protecting for you. Does that change the way that you face difficulty? Of course it does. Think about the way in which you are shielded by faith then. You're not subject to the same attack of the enemy that everybody else is because you trust that God is with you in your circumstance. Say, He's with me, He's with me. In, my in my circumstance. Now here's what's better. 
He will reward the man who is seeking him. See, this is like holding up a shield in battle that bullets don't penetrate. It means that if someone is cutting off your leg, you know God is still with you and he will reward you in that situation for seeking him and everything that you need or that is worth having, he has. Oh man, that's better than a shield. That's better than a Kevlar jacket. If you really believe this is true, That changes the way you face difficulties. Everyone is waiting for life-changing ministries, families to fall apart because we have experienced trial. No, we actually find trials validate us and show exactly where we stand. You will not find the families in life-changing ministries falling apart because we face death. We have been facing the enemy since the day we started this ministry. What does it say when people do fall apart? We're shielded by our trust in God. You might write in your notes that the fourth thing is faith or trust is acting as a shield in the life of a believer. Hold up your shield, saints. Take that book that has taught you to trust him and hold up your shield. What is controlling your thinking? Let me tell you why I'm such a stickler for the letter of the word. If the word says today, and to you that means any time in the next week, your shield is down. Now maybe you don't get hit with the arrow, but whoever your shield was supposed to protect does. If the word says run from, and you walk from, your shield is down. See, sometimes we want to consider a partial success, success. A partial success is a total failure. I want you to get something here. Because you either did or did not use your shield of faith correctly. And if you are not walking out what the word says specifically, then what are you doing? You're moving in your own carnal thinking. That's very dangerous. Romans 8 says to be carnally minded is death. My daily prayer is that the Lord would deliver me from my own carnal thoughts and shape my mind by His Word because it's His Word in the midst of trial that is a shield for us. It forms a shield of faith that protects you. Do you want to be protected? Then you cannot lean on what you think is the right thing to do ever. You must lean on what the Word of God says. In verse 6, in this... You greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. Does the Bible acknowledge that you suffer? Yes. Grief, yes. In all kinds of trials, yes. In fact, if something stops being a trial to you, then the enemy will choose a new path and God will allow him because it refines you. When something stops being a trial to you, the area of battle simply shifts. But listen to what verse 7 says. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. What is the purpose of a trial according to Peter? It's to actually validate your faith, not destroy it. See, if what is inside you is precious, 
If what is inside you is real, then the trial not only does not destroy it, it proves the genuineness of it to everyone around you and to you. How many times have you thought you couldn't do something until you did? Anybody who's ever given birth, right? Come on, ladies, where are you at? That place where we say transition, right? That's, you literally feel like you are dying. In fact, most women start saying things like, I can't, I can't, I just can't. They push against the bed and they're trying to get away from their own bodies in that moment. And yet we're all sitting here. You're surprised at what you can do when you have to. Will the Christian who endures a trial, that trial actually ends up verifying and validating the faith that you say that you have. All you have to do is hold up your shield. All you have to do is actually cling to the word and not some approximation of the word or tribal version of it. Modifying the word is dangerous. Because when you get through the trial, you don't know whether it was your modification that got you through the trial, i.e. your own right arm, or God's word. We must stick to what God's word says. It's not optional. Oh, man. How many verses would we like to be optional? If you don't forgive, you won't be forgiven. I'd love that to be optional. It's not. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. I'd love that to be optional, but it's not. If you're praying at the altar and there realize that you or your brother have a problem with each other, you leave your gift at the altar. Don't even go through the rest of the worship service. Go get it right. Right then, nothing else is more. I wish that was optional. But it's not. See, when we stick to the word, not even death sticks to you. It's incredible. The shield will act as a protecting agent in your life. You will have confidence that because you stood on the word, God is guarding your inheritance. Do you want confidence, saints? Yes. The first one is that the world is strange to you and you to it. The second is that you were chosen for obedience to Jesus. The third is that our inheritance is guarded by heaven. The fourth is that faith or trust is acting as a shield in the trial. The fifth is that trials are a verification of your faith and glory at his return. If you pick up with me in verse 8, though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. What a strange expression. How are you receiving the salvation of your souls right now? See, this isn't an ongoing tense. Well, to start with, you're not damned and separated from God. Every day that you're in communion with Him, you are receiving the benefits of your soul being saved. Every day that you walk in that, the promises of God are made a little more sure to you. Every day that you complete that, you know Him and are known by Him just a little bit better. Verse 10. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you 
searched intently and with the greatest of care, trying to find out the time and the circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you. How do you feel when you find out that Isaiah was sold in two and his life was ultimately about serving you? That Jeremiah was thrown in a pit and his life was ultimately about serving you. That Daniel was likely made a eunuch and his life was about serving you. How do you feel about that? It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you. But, they, but when they spoke of these things that have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, even angels long to look into these things. You have greater insight by God's word than angels have by looking around the heavenlies. Come on, let that sink in for a minute. There is greater insight found in the book sitting in your lap than the angels that were here from the creation have into God's dealings. Do you have a responsibility to learn the book? Should you cherish the letter of every verse that is written? It's difficult. I'm now in my early 40s. And sometimes my arms aren't quite long enough to read the thing that I want to read. It's a strange phenomenon that is happening in my life. I misplaced a conjunction in the last sentence. That bothers me. Do you know why that bothers me? Because every word was breathed by God. See, He breathed it onto the page. It's, it's precious to Him. That's why we don't want to quote the word in generality. It's why we don't want to kind of aim for sort of what the word says. Modify it at our own peril, really. What we want to do is we want to make sure that we're standing on correct doctrine, correct scripture. And nothing else is important, certainly not our sleep, not our peace of mind. How can you have peace of mind when you're outside of what the scripture says you must do? But no matter what comes your way, you could be standing in a Polish city under siege by the Germans. And if you know that you are standing in the center of what God has said, you are completely secure in His will. Oh, that is an incredible thing. Do you realize that our brothers for a couple thousand years have faced the worst kinds of death? They have faced punishments for their families, imprisonments, mass execution, sometimes genocide for no other reason than they are Christians and the power of Christ in them caused them to stand the test? We can stand under any circumstance. I want to assure you of that. We are nowhere near even reaching the beginnings of a threshold. In the name of Jesus, we will take whatever hell throws at us and we will walk on top of it. Do you know why? Luke 10 says, I've given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions over all the power of the enemy. How much of the power? All. all. There's nothing the devil can move in my direction that I cannot handle. Is that true for you? Or have you forecasted to him in your speech exactly what it would take to beat you? 
If anything ever happened to my kids, I just don't know what I would do. Be careful what you're saying. You might be teaching the enemy how to attack you. Well, if that relationship went south, I just don't know how I, will, how I could ever make it. You might be instructing the enemy how to dismantle your life. How much better would it be to simply say, it may seem strange to you because you're in the world, but I was chosen for obedience to Jesus. My inheritance is guarded in the heavens. My trust in him acts like a shield around me. The trial I presently stand in is verification of the faith that I say that I have. In fact, verse 13 says, therefore prepare your minds for action. The Christian life is not defined by inaction. It's defined by action. And that action starts by setting your mind upon God's word. Fixing your mind on things above. This is something that was prophesied in our worship service. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Be self-controlled. Set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, what's this next phrase say? What are you holy in? All you do. You will not find a verse that says you are holy in all that you do not do. The emphasis in the Bible is upon godly action, not godly inaction. I'm not suggesting that there's not such a thing as a godly refrain, but the far greater weight in Scripture is on acting in a godly manner. You want to know what the keys to winning and trial are, the keys to winning and spiritual warfare are? Let's cover that first slide, Susan, and we'll go through them together. They were right here laid out in 13 verses. The very first thing is that the world should be strange to you. We don't do things like other people do. And if we did, then we cannot be standing on the word. Secondly, the very reason that you were chosen was for obedience. Come on, say, I was chosen, I was chosen. For, obedience. for obedience. When we act against that... It's like denying that we belong to God. You were chosen for obedience. Third, our inheritance is guarded by heaven itself. All the armories of heaven guard what God has said to you. It is so important that you live like that, that you believe that. God is not like a man. He doesn't change his mind. He doesn't whiffle. He, he, he doesn't on Monday say yes and on Tuesday say no. Faith or trust is acting as a shield in the trial for the real believer. Can I tell you how many times you won't understand what's happening? I mean, surely anybody in here has been through a trial. Did you understand its purpose immediately? Of course not. You need to accept that you don't have proper perspective on it and just stop and say, you know what? I'm an olive tree. Flourishing in the house of my God. I trust him. He's good. His name is good. I'm going to go tell the saints he's good. Because when you do that, the enemy has nowhere to go in your thoughts, your life. He's got nothing to beat on you about. Your shield of faith is blocking those arrows. 
Fifth, trials are in fact a verification of your faith and glory at his return. The point here being, if you see a trial as a punishment, you're not living in accordance with God's word. James, the first chapter, says consider it pure joy when trials come. Look, I know there were terrible floods in Louisiana, and we have friends here tonight from Louisiana. Can I tell you it was the very best thing for most Christians in Louisiana? Do you know why? Not because somebody ended up with a better house. Not because they saw the church be the church. Not because anything substantially is better, but because they got to trust in their God. That's why. It proves that some stand in the faith while others are sinking in the carnality of the world around them. The point is that a Christian can endure anything. There is nothing that can overcome a Christian. So trials are not meant to punish you. They're not there torturing you. They're there to verify to everyone that you are what you say you are. Oh, man. If you could see that, then all of a sudden it's like, hey, man, I got one more way. The Lord just dimmed the lights so that I can shine. You ever wondered how you were going to be a witness to the people around you? Well, when hell's fury is poured out on you and it doesn't make a dent, that's a witness to the people that are around you. They can follow you around every day waiting for you to break, waiting for the inevitable A demon of sorrow to drop upon you and beat you in despondency and despair. And when it does not happen because you dwell in the presence of the Most High, they go, God, that's strange. And they have to think differently about it. There might even just be a defiant streak in a Christian filled with the Holy Ghost that wouldn't give the devil the satisfaction of watching you whimper. This makes us want to prepare our minds for action. If you know that you're destined for trials, if you know that your brothers around the world are going through them, if you know that you're supposed to consider them pure joy, but instead you feel buffeted by them and beat up by them and harassed by them, perhaps you need to spend some time preparing your mind for the battle that lies ahead. So that you do frame your thoughts correctly. So that you do trust God correctly. So that you do apply the word with specificity. Oh man, that is important. And most of all, that you are holy in everything that you do. Can I show you the second slide? Seven is way too many to remember. I've been preaching a long time. And I know that I've just read to you too long of a passage. I know that I've given you too many points. I can see that even though you could watch a Netflix marathon and grasp it all tonight, that 13 verses in a row is killing some of you. I can see that. So I combine them for you. If you look at strange to the world and its ways and chosen for obedience to Jesus, maybe we should just say, in a trial, I'm going to be strangely obedient. I'm going to be obedient in a way that makes people go, what's going on with that guy? I was driving through South Texas on my way to Matamoros and saw a Muslim in refugio, refurio, however you say it, refurio, thank you, refurio, Texas, 
on a mat outside of a church praying to the east. I think that's strange. But it's also convicting to me. That Muslim is serving what he thinks is God and is actually uh, an approximation made by Satan. But he has the courage in a Texas cow town next to a church to get out on a prayer mat and bow with his forehead to the east. I think that's strange. When is the last time somebody looked at our Christian faith and said, those people are strange, and you didn't take it as an insult? It's actually a compliment. We're supposed to be strangely obedient. When you look at three and four, our inheritance is guarded by heaven. Faith or trust is acting as a shield in the trial. Maybe we should consider in any and every, say any, and every situation, we are shielded by faith. Oh, come on. If something is taken off your head, then where was your shield of faith? If something has so crushed you that you just don't know how you breathe, where is your shield of faith? You have to be honest. It's somewhere down by your feet when it was supposed to be up in your arms. Now, we all get caught off guard sometimes, saints. But I'm explaining to you what Peter is teaching us so that we will win because I intend to win if I'm going to be in a fight. When you consider that trials are a verification of your faith, then you might just say, I'm validated by trials, not punished by them. Man, that is so much better of a perspective. How many of you have a sickness in your body that you're fighting with? Amen. We're going to pray for you. I want every one of you to be healed. But every day that you are not yet healed and you continue to love the Lord and push forward in the Lord and praise the mighty God and will not stop, it is a validation that you belong to Christ. So you can hate the sickness if you want, but you cannot hate the process. James actually says that it makes you mature. So does the book of Romans. Oh, man. If we understood the benefit that is ours in the trial, we would consider them pure joy. That seventh one, I think we could just say, I have been prepared and I'm holy in everything that I do. See, if you make up your mind that you will take no action unless it is the action that God has told you, that way whatever you are doing is in obedience to God. That is such a blessing. To be a strangely obedient Christian who is shielded by faith, validated in trials, prepared and holy in everything they do, that is a victorious Christian. Church, we can sit around and sympathize all day long with those that are not living victoriously, but we need to be careful that we don't imitate them. Our behavior should be strange to the world. In fact... They might sit in disbelief. Can I share with you a couple passages that are not usually taught in new believers class? Is that okay? Let's start with a good one. This comes from the law because we are now going to go law, prophets, writings with our remaining time. In Exodus fifteen thirteen, we find out that in the midst of the Red Sea experience, Moses says this, in your unfailing love, How strangely obedient is it to walk out into a sea with an army pursuing you? 
How shielded by faith is it to say God has unfailing love with an army breathing down your neck? How validated in the trial is it when you come out the other side? How holy are you in everything that you do when you can see that God's footsteps led you through the sea? In your unfailing love, you will lead the people you have redeemed. In your strength, you will guide them to your holy dwelling. A holy God leading a people declared holy in all they do for him into a place he calls a holy dwelling. Do you know what it took to get into the army of Israel? We won't read it tonight, but in Deuteronomy 20, it wasn't dependent on having a big army. It wasn't dependent upon having sharpshooter skills. It wasn't dependent upon your IQ. There was no aptitude test. Do you know what it took to get into the army? You had to be willing on the day of battle when you looked and you saw that you were outnumbered. See, God assumed that His army would always be outnumbered. He would always be facing something that felt superior and you would have to trust in God. The requirement, according to Deuteronomy 20, is that you be willing on the day of battle. Are you willing, saints? If you're willing, then you should win. As we move to the prophets, I want to show you an instance where they did not win. 2 Kings 3. While we're looking at 2 Kings 3, we'll pick up in verse 15. The setting is that we have a few kings in a coalition that are going to war against some others. Because we have the king of Israel and we have the king of Judah. And they come to see Elijah. Elijah's not real happy uh, to see one of the kings. He doesn't have a great deal of regard for him. And yet he needs to hear from God. Well, have you ever been in a situation where you needed to hear from God and you weren't even sure everybody in the room was for God's purposes? Oh, it's tough, isn't it? It, it? You really hope that on those days you're surrounded by those that are as sold out as you are. But so often you've got at least one in the bunch that you're like, I don't even know what side that guy's on. You know what Elijah did in that setting? He says, but now bring me a harpist. He stopped in the middle of a battle and said, let's worship a while. Can I tell you that if you want to win in your trial, you have to be strangely obedient. That strange obedience might mean that while bullets are flying around you, you drop to your knees, raise your hands and begin to worship God because your only means of success is obedience. And you have to know what he's saying. This means that when everybody else is down and everybody else is despairing and everybody else is pointing to negative things, you might be praising. You might be extolling the virtues of his character to both the heavens and your very own soul. Elijah was praising in the midst of a battlefield. Pick up in verse 18. This is an easy thing in the eyes of the Lord. He will also hand Moab over to you. You will overthrow every fortified city. Say every. And every. every major town. Say every. every. You will cut down every good tree. Say every. every. You'll stop up all the springs. Say all. all. You'll ruin every good field with stones. Say every. every. Oh, man. 
That sounds like total victory. And it's prophesied by Elijah. Is Elisha known for good prophecies? This guy did at least 14 miracles, depending on how you count them. He is the Talmud or the disciple of Elijah. I mean, he's got pedigree. Go down to verse 24. But when the Moabites came to the camp of Israel, the Israelites rose up and fought against them and they fled. And the Israelites invaded the land and slaughtered the Moabites. They destroyed the towns and each man threw a stone on every good field. Say every. Every. Until it was covered. They stopped up all the springs. Say all. All. And they cut down every good tree. Only Kir Harseth was left with stones in its place. Let's do a battlefield assessment real quick. I have a slide for you that will help you here. It was prophesied by Elisha, every fortified city, every major town, every good tree, all the springs, every good field. Is that in dispute? It's really not in dispute. Look at the way that these things are mentioned in the reporting. It simply says they destroyed the towns, but it omits the word every. And then they start at the end of the list of the things that they were told to do. And it says every good field, all the springs, every good tree. And then you reach the end, the summation. Kir Harseth was left. Well, is that every city? Is that every town? Do you notice how they start at the end of the list and say, I did number five. I did number four, I did number three, and by the way, um, there was just one town left. See, this is what it looks like when you claim a partial success as success. This is what it looks like to do three quarters of what a verse says. This is what it looks like to approximate God's word. But can I tell you, in Israel's history, this is a total failure. It's not a partial success. You want me to show you why? Look at these next few verses. Verse 26. When the king of Moab saw that the battle had gone against him, he took with him 700 swordsmen to break through to the king of Edom. But they failed. Then he took his firstborn son, who was to succeed him as king, and offered him as a sacrifice on the city wall. The fury against Israel was great, and they withdrew and return to their own land. Where Israel was supposed to have a total victory, they actually left the Moabites in place. Even though Elisha prophesied that they would have a total victory. Why did the prophecy not come true? Because the people didn't do what the prophecy said. Your victory in the kingdom depends upon your ability to cling to what the word says they got four out of five things right they only left one city and that city becomes a stronghold in their history that only messiah removes you can read about that in amos that's incredible so what they see as a four-fifths victory god sees as a total failure Man, I don't want to be a failure. We have good prophecies. They had good prophecies. We have anointed men of God. They had an anointed man of God. We have troops who will fight. 
They had troops who would fight. Why did they fail? Because the enemy was very committed and they did not do what the prophecy said. So here we clearly see that the will of God is thwarted, at least temporarily, because his people gave up in the midst of a trial. How important is it that we be strangely obedient, shielded by faith, see trials as validation? See, if they believe that their inheritance was kept in heaven, they're not worried about losing their life. They can be strangely obedient. If they believe that God is with them in the midst of the battle and He rewards them no matter what they do as long as they're pursuing Him, then they're shielded by their faith. The fierceness of the battle actually ends up being a validation to them. Look, we're doing it. We're in the faith. They're prepared by the prophet himself and everything they did would have been considered holy. So they had a chance for a total success and ended up in total failure. Why? Because they only did four-fifths of what they were told to do. Man, that's kind of convicting, isn't it? I want to tell you that it can go the other direction too. And we're going to look at that. But before we do, I want to show you Psalm 33. Go with me to Psalm 33. This is a church that is not committed four-fifths of the way. We're an all-or-nothing kind of church. And I'm going to assume that if we didn't get one-fifth of it right, it's because we simply didn't know. We were ignorant. But we'll educate ourselves and we'll go after it with all of our heart because there's no one among us who wants to only complete four-fifths of what God has called us to do. We want a total success, don't we? Psalm 33, verse 10. The Lord foils the plans of the nations. He thwarts the purposes of the peoples. But the plans of the Lord stand firm forever. The purposes of His heart through all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. The people He chose for His inheritance. And when you think about that, to know that you were chosen by God to be strangely obedient, shielded in faith, validated by trials, prepared and holy in everything you do, that's a special thing. It means you can't be put into any situation on the planet that you don't succeed. It means that nothing that comes against you is too much for you. That's better than the special forces. Blessed is the nation who God chose for His inheritance. From heaven, the Lord looks down and sees all mankind. From His dwelling place, He watches all who live on the earth. He who forms the hearts of all, who considers everything they do. Say, the Lord considers, the Lord considers everything I do. You know, the reason that is frightening to this pastor is because while the Lord considers everything I do, I don't consider everything that I do. I often act and then think about what I did. Am I the only one here that does that? It's good that I'm alone today. I can see that. God considers everything that you do. If you have to give an account for every idle word, how important is it that you speak spiritual words? If what you do, everything you do is supposed to be holy, directed by Him, you're doing it because He said, how important is it that the actions that you take be God? Oh man, 
But consider what happens when you live by those standards. It doesn't matter whether you're surrounded by an army on every side because you know that your king is delivering you. This is just validating that you're his. Listen to how David says it. No king is saved by the size of his army. No warrior escapes by his great strength. A horse is a vain hope for deliverance despite all its great strength it cannot save. But the eyes of the Lord are on those who fear him, on those whose hope is in his unfailing love, to deliver them from death and keep them alive in famine. No matter whether you are facing death or famine, horses that are more than you, armies that are more than you, strength that is more than you, That is not how trials are won. Trials are won by being strangely obedient, shielded in our faith, validated in the trial, knowing that everything that you do is holy. That is how they are won. Jesus looked right at his apostles in Luke 22. We stay in this psalm. In Luke 22, and he says, You are those who have stood by me in my trials. And I confer on you a kingdom just as my father conferred one on me. Do you know what that means? When you stand by Jesus in the trial, he stands by you in the trial. Oh, man. When was he ever outmatched? Well, in one sense, never, right? In another, he wasn't carrying around swords. He wasn't carrying around political position. He wasn't carrying around the wealth or the might of the Roman legion. He was always outmatched. But you don't see him that way, do you? Was Jesus strangely obedient? Was Jesus trusting his father like a shield with him all the time? When you see Jesus go through trials, does it validate who he actually is? Was he holy in everything that he did? That's how we win. That is exactly how we win. Listen to how verse 20 of Psalm 33 picks up and says it. We wait in hope for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. In Him our hearts rejoice for we trust in His holy name. May your unfailing love rest on us, O Lord, even as we put our hope in you. Do you know what we do in trial? We dig deeper in our hope in the Lord. We get so strangely obedient that people think we're crazy. The hole that you're in, the deeper you need to get into Christ. By the way, anybody know where David was when he wrote this song? See, David had stopped by a place called Nob. And he asked the priest in Nob, Hey man, you, uh, you got any bread? No, I only have uh, the supernatural bread inside. I don't have any ordinary bread. David said, that'll do for us. There's a whole discussion about what made the men holy. That was an interesting discussion. And then he borrows a sword. Because he does this, an evil shepherd who is there named Doeg, who belongs to Saul, goes and tells Saul what happened. And Saul comes and kills everybody in the whole town. David, who's got this in his rearview mirror, runs to a Philistine town. And when he gets to the Philistine town, he learns what has happened there. And he realizes that the Philistines aren't going to receive him either. And do you know what he resorts to doing? Pretending to be insane. He let spit roll down his beard. He acted like a madman. So get this. Psalm 33 is written by a man 
who is on the run from a king, even though he's called to be a king, who is just feels personally responsible for a whole city dying because of his actions, and he's in the center of the enemy's camp as a madman considered a raving lunatic. And you know where he wrote Psalm 33? In the midst of that. See, when you say no king is saved by the size of his army, David was living it. Right? He had put all of his hope in the Lord. He didn't even have a reputation at that point. He's a madman. Church, it's not just that a prophecy can be given and it not lived up to because of the faithlessness of the people. A prophecy can be given and it changed because of the faithfulness of the people. Did you ever read that David um, mourned and, and, and tore his clothes when he heard the judgment pronounced upon his child through Bathsheba? But once the judgment happened, he got up and he praised God and he, he uh, uh, washed his face and uh, he, he ate in front of everybody and everyone went, that's strange. He knew before the judgment fell, it was possible for God to change his mind. But afterwards, his hope was that he would see that child again. Does that seem strange to anybody? It does to me. And here we are living it. I want to show you a man who prophesies, says this is going to happen, and then because of faithfulness, it does not happen. Turn with me to Acts 27. We're in the law of the New Testament. It's 8.45. Are you still with me? Yes. Uh, ha- have we uh, saturated your thoughts with Scripture? Because this is about to get really, really good for those of you that want weapons of warfare. In Acts 27, beginning in verse 9, much time had been lost and sailing had already become dangerous. Because by now, it was after Yom Kippur. So Paul warned them, Man, I can see. Say, I can see. I can see. Man, if Paul said he could see it, do you think he could see it? Yes. I mean, this is the guy that tells us in 2 Thessalonians what the return of Jesus is going to look like. This is the guy in 1 Thessalonians 4 that tells us what trumpet it's going to be at and the order of the resurrection of the dead. Is he pretty good at seeing things spiritually? Verse 10. Men, I can see that our voyage is going to be disastrous. Say disastrous. And bring great loss. Say great loss. To ship and cargo. And to our own lives also. Say our own lives. But the centurion, instead of listening to what Paul said, followed the advice of the pilot of the... And the, of the owner of the ship. <clears throat> you feel like Mr. Centurion's making a little mistake here? Isn't it funny how many times when in contention things boil down to who has a sword and who has ownership? Isn't that funny? Like this is a symbol of every real struggle you've ever been in. Like you're dealing with a carnal relative or something. And you say, hey, look, man, let's not do this. Turn, turn the car around. Let's go pray. It's my car. <laughs> it's my ship here, right? The owner of the ship. 
You're, you're dealing with somebody and said, look, brother, let, let's not fight. Well, yeah, you don't want to fight. I've got a gun. Centurion, right? See, he's dealing with all of those things right here. This is just like any carnal situation you've been in. Somebody with ownership is there and somebody with superior force is there. And Paul has only got his ability to hear from God. Okay? I wonder who's armed and who's disarmed in that situation. Suffice it to say things go bad. Let's pick up in verse 15. The ship was caught by the storm and could not head into the wind. So we gave way to it and were driven along. We were passed to the lee of a small island called Cauda when we were hardly able to make the lifeboat secure. When the men had hoisted it aboard, they passed ropes under the ship itself to hold it together. You think they're starting to get the impression that Paul was right? Fearing that they would run aground on the sandbars of Sirtis, they lowered the sea anchor and let the ship be driven along. We took such a violent battering from the storm the next day that they began to throw the cargo overboard. Starting to see that prophecy fulfilled, aren't we? On the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and the storm continued raging, we finally gave up all hope of being saved. Is that pretty dark? Prophecy's coming to pass, isn't it? The prophecy was coming to pass in 2 Kings 3 until somebody took drastic action. Then the fury against Israel was so great... That they did not do what God said. In this case, we have God's word coming to pass. We have everything happening in the judgment order that it said that it would happen. But somebody's going to take a different kind of drastic action. After the men had gone a long time without food, Paul stood up before them and said, By the way, Paul's a prisoner on this ship. Men... You should have taken my advice. I guess he couldn't help it. He was, in fact, human and uh, not deified, no matter what you think of Paul. Man, you should have taken my advice. Not to sail from Crete. Then you would have spared yourselves this damage and loss. But now I urge you to keep up your courage. Because not one of you will be lost. Only the ship will be destroyed. Is that different than what he said he could see? Wonder why. What drastic action happened? Last night, an angel of the God whose I am, or to whom I belong, and whom I serve, stood beside me and said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar, and God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. See, in 2 Kings 3, a wicked king sacrificed his firstborn son. In Acts 27, the apostle Paul gave up food, gave up sleep, and the prisoner on the ship begins interceding to the God of all creation, and God gives him the lives that were supposed to be lost on the journey. If faithlessness costs lives, faithfulness will save lives. Oh man, thank God for a trial then. It might be a chance to save a life. What if God is just setting the stage for you? Verse 25. 
So keep up your courage, men. For I have faith in God that it will happen just as he told me. Nevertheless, we must run aground on some island. He knew that there was no way to avoid the trial. He just was determined to be strangely obedient in the trial. His faith shielded him. He said, I have faith in God that it will happen. Was he validated in the trial? Yeah, everything that he said came to pass. Was he prepared and holy in all he did? (laughs) Even when the ship broke apart, do you remember what happened with Paul? He gets on shore, is making a fire, snake bit, shakes it off in the fire. He gets taken to the governor of the island, prays for him, and his dysentery goes away. So they start bringing him the sick, and he heals everybody. Was the trial a bad thing? Well, I guess that depends on whether or not your life was safe through it. I guess that depends on whether or not your island is the one visited because of the trial. By the way, the island was Malta, where Fabian Gretsch comes from. So are we blessed to have the trial? As we bring this message to a place where we're approaching a close, I want to remind you that in the prophets of the Older Testament, faithlessness costs lives, and a partial success was a total failure. Where in the book of Acts, the 27th chapter in the New Testament, the same kind of prophecy is given, but faithfulness saved lives. And although it all looked lost in the end, it ends up being a success. Tell me that faith doesn't have the ability to shield you. You know, Matthew Pirro and I met in an actual fistfight. I'm sure that the devil meant that to destroy our relationship. It actually began it. You have no idea what today's trial will produce tomorrow if you're faithful. If you're faithless... We know exactly what it will produce. More of the same. Death. So we should rejoice when we see trials coming our way. It's a chance for us to get strangely obedient. It's a chance for us to hold up our trust in God and watch arrows bounce off of it. It's a chance for us to, before the whole world, be validated in the very faith that we're standing in. It's a chance for us to take holy action and people will notice because you're in a trial. Man, isn't that beautiful? In the New Testament book of prophecy, Revelation, in the 13th chapter and the 7th verse, He was given power, say power, Power. to make war against the saints and to conquer them. Does that sound good to anyone? This is like Daniel 7. This is about the trial of all trials coming upon the saints. Someone is given power to make war against the saints and to conquer them. And he was given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. All the inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast. All whose names have not been written in the book of life belonging to the lamb that was slain from the creation of the world. Does this sound as serious as it gets? He who has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to go into captivity, into captivity he'll go. Does that sound like a trial? 
If anyone is to be killed with the sword, with the sword he will be killed. Man, it doesn't get any more intense than this. The writer says this calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of the saints. Do you know why? Because they were strangely obedient in the trial. When you cut off their heads, they love not their lives so much as to shrink from death. They overcame him by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. Is that strangely obedient? How did they patiently endure? It says it right here. Faithfulness on the part of the saints. Their faith acted like a shield in the greatest trial that ever comes upon mankind. Matthew 24 actually intimates that this is worse than World War II's Holocaust. This is worse than the days of Noah. This is worse than anything that has ever come on the planet. And how do they survive it? They're strangely obedient. They're shielded by faith. The actual trial meant to destroy them ends up proving that they belong to Christ and they are called holy in everything that they do. You can see that in Revelation 14 and verse 12. This calls for patient endurance <laughs> on the part of the saints who obey God's commandments and remain faithful to Jesus. The man who is obeying God's commands, who is faithful to Jesus in the trial, it's not that he can't, his body can't be conquered. It's not that he can't be killed. He can like any other person. But his inheritance is kept for him. The trial actually proves him to be in Christ. And he's called holy in everything that he does. That's why verse 13 says, Then I heard a voice from heaven say, Right blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit. They will rest from their labor for their deeds will follow them. Oh man. What you do in the midst of your trial is what will follow your life into the world to come. What you do in peacetime has little to do with anything. Everybody does well in peacetime. It's what you do when you're under siege by hell. Do you advance and kick down its gates? Or do you tuck your tail and look for a good spot to hide? In this church, we do not shrink back. Amen? Amen. I have two passages left for you. And they're very personal in nature. So I want to read them to you that way. It comes from Philippians, the first chapter, in verse 4. If we can put it on the screen, you will see which words I change. After talking about the sanctity of the text, I'm going to ask you to forgive me this creative liberty. In all of my prayers for you, LCM, I pray with great joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day till now. If you were here, we have endured some stuff together. Being confident of this one thing, LCM, that he who began this good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ. We cannot be beaten by today's trial. And it doesn't matter what the enemy throws at us tomorrow because the power of the Almighty God 
sustains us. His Spirit has filled us and He will make us more hard than the enemy is hard. He's been doing this for a long, long time. This gives us the ability to defiantly smile in the face of an enemy and laugh. We can actually pray for those who persecute us because their persecution is no real threat to us. The brother of Jesus, a man named Jude, actually writes at the end of his very short letter that you should be strangely obedient, shielded by faith, validated in trials, and holy in all you do. And here's how he says it. It's Jude, verse 17. Peyton, if we could have the worship team come up here, please. But dear friends, remember what the apostles of our Lord Jesus foretold. They said to you, in the last times, there will be scoffers who will follow their own ungodly desires. These are the men who divide you, who follow mere natural instincts and do not have the spirit. See, the world is strange to us because they are following their natural desires. And we are strange to them because we are following the leading of the Spirit regardless of what our natural instincts tell us to do. It is not a normal thing to offer your cheek to the man who is slapping you. But it is what the Scripture says to do. That is a strange kind of obedience and Jude expected it. He actually said you can pick out these other guys because they don't do it. They follow their own desires. Next in verse 20. But you, dear friends, build yourselves up in your most holy faith and pray in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourselves in God's love as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus to bring you to eternal life. Does it sound like he believed that faith would shield you? In your trial, it really does. He tells us to pray in the Holy Ghost. To cling to our trust in the Almighty God. And that shields us. It builds us up. It makes us stronger. Be merciful to those who doubt. Snatch others from the fire. And save them. To others show mercy. Mixed with fear. Hating even the clothing stained by the corrupted flesh. If standing in the midst of your trial, you are doing holy things, that proves who you belong to. You might be able to stand like Paul on that ship and say, An angel of the God to whom I belong told me to come and speak to you. You might be able to stand in the midst of that situation on the same sinking ship that every other person is on. And be the lifeboat that they hold on to. Because the man who trusts in God cannot be overcome. To him who is able to keep you from falling. And present you before his glorious presence without fault. And with. And with. And with. This is why we praise and worship at funerals. This is why we dance and celebrate in the midst of other people crying. We believe 
that he will present us before his glorious presence without fault, with great joy. We believe he keeps us from falling. To the only God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ, our Lord, before all ages, hear this, now and forevermore. How do you bring him glory now? In the midst of a trial. And if you do it now, you will stand with Him in glory for all of the ages to come. Now and forevermore. Amen. My prayer for my loved ones in this room. And I can honestly say, staring at each one of you tonight, there's not a person in here that I don't know. There's only two people in here that I don't know everything about your life. And I love you. We want to stand in the midst of these trials and show the entire world the faith that we have cannot be even dented by these things. The right hand of Him who raised Jesus from the dead has filled this glove with the almighty power of God. This ought to give people hope. You are not a victim. You're more than a conqueror. Be strangely obedient. What are you going to be? Let faith shield you. What does faith do? Shield you. You are validated in trials. What are we? Validated. Now prepare your minds for action. Action, not inaction. And be holy in everything you do. And God will take care of all of the rest. Amen? Amen. Please stand to your feet.